five, four, three, two, one, zero, and liftoff. You're listening to Working Forward. Presented by Symmetra. In partnership with NASA Reimagine. In this limited podcast series, hosted by Harry Monty, Laura Dynan Haber, Paul Tyler, and Todd Zen, we explore the future of work from a variety of viewpoints and discuss the challenges and opportunities ahead. Hello, and welcome to the Working Forward podcast. I am Todd Zen, and we have reached the finale of our first season of the Working Forward podcast. We are so glad you've joined us as we've gone on this journey and excited to have you here today. I've got all the hosts here. I'm going to bring them in in a second and want to chat a little bit before I do, though, about our format for today. I think we've got something teed up that will be a lot of fun as we look to close out this first season. We've talked to a lot of great guests. We've covered a lot of interesting ground on the future of work. So what we thought we would do is bring our hosts together to talk about, reflect, and think about what are some of the themes that stood out, what really resonated with us. But we also wanted to introduce a vehicle that would let us share some of the clips from the conversations that really resonated with us and get our reactions to that. So what we're going to do for you today is we're going to play some of those clips. We're going to talk about them. And and we're going to reflect on what has been a super fun season of the Working Forward podcast. But without further ado, let me bring in my friends, my fellow co-hosts, Harry, Paul, and Laura. Welcome into the show. Hope you guys have had as much fun as I have as we've gone on this journey together. Indeed, it has we have. been fun, Todd. Hey, Paul. <laughs> uh, sorry to talk over you there. But um, yeah, it has been a lot of fun, Todd. And uh, I really enjoy going back and listening to the episodes and I think you'll see some moments today where we all went, whoa, remember that? So it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, we, we, we certainly covered a lot of ground here. Yeah, and it's interesting to see how all that ground kind of combines into a few shared messages as well. Yeah, great point. And, you know, to get us started here today, I wanted to go back to where we started. And when we embarked on this journey, we started with a conversation with a futurist. And I think I said it on that first episode. That's the coolest job title I've ever heard. It it still is, by the way. Uh, You know, this idea of someone who can can see the future and, you know, really analyze trends and, and help provide some some real concrete thoughts on where we're headed and you know we we welcomed in Gary Golden and I think he did a great job of framing up our series we used it as a launching off point to get into lots of great topics but to get us started here today we wanted to get rolling with a clip from Gary where I think he really does a great job of summarizing the future of work and again like I said I think it did create a great foundation for for where we were to go so uh, let's start by playing that clip, if we could. Uh, for me, the really three primary macro picture uh, themes. One is how organizations respond to social change around mental health and mental well-being, and not just seeing what we do within the organization as kind of a, a benefits package feature, but as part of a, a bigger social movement around mental well-being. Uh, the second would be uh, kind of... A, a, a true future orientation around technology inside the workplace. And I think the the framing that we're going to want to talk about is working with AI. So individuals, whether they're at home or in a factory or in an office, they're going to be working alongside these advanced systems to help them make better decisions and collaborate. And then the third one is is this, this conversation around value systems and kind of the, the big picture social contract of who are we as a company and how do we respond to social issues uh, that may likely be very polarizing across society? So those are the big three. And then if I had to throw in a fourth, it would probably be globalization of the workforce. So we heard from Gary about his big four, and I think those were excellent. Uh, But then we furthered the conversation, and I think we have our own big four. So why don't I hand it off to Harry to talk a little bit about what we see the big four as after we've had all these great discussions. Harry, take it away. 
Yeah, thanks, Todd. And boy, when I watch that clip, I think about how long ago that feels <laughs> that we started with Gary. Uh, it was our first episode. And um, I really do, to your point, I think he, he framed it up really well. And I'm going to, there's a, an alignment here with his themes, but as the episodes developed, I think we came up with our own way of referring to them. So, um, you know, the big four from my perspective, technology came up in every, every episode, culture, um, the third one being remote or hybrid work structures, and the fourth being mental health and, and wellness. And I don't want to lose the fact that embedded within every single one of those four themes was this sub-theme of generational differences and how generational differences change the way people perceive or influence the way people perceive each of those four things. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about today, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, on that note, um, I, I also heard technology and, uh, hmm, could we combine the impacts of technology and generational change? And I think we, we had a really interesting discussion with, uh, Dr. Adrian Mayers and, uh, how perceptions of privacy change based on age. And I'll just run that clip. You know, when you think about, about Gen Z, Gen Y, and how easy it is to to live your life in your on your mobile, right? To live your life online, and and not really thinking about about data privacy or things that you're putting into that, you know, in, into that cyber universe. Whereas, you know, Gen X, you know, which I <laughs> skeptical. I, I I don't know. Is is this age, Harry? I think there there certainly is a, a generational component uh, to people's perception of privacy. And am I willing to share my information exchange for something, you know, tangible? And I think, you know, Todd, it, it, it I think it, I, I think that equation changes. The longer you, perhaps, the older or the more you've lived, the less you necessarily trust that the data remains private. You know, I, I, I learned a lot about my, my DNA from 23andMe and only to discover that, huh, somebody, some hacker somewhere in the universe may actually have my, my DNA. So <laughs> I do think, you know, this is a, we are dealing with a very interesting situation where people will give information and in, in the workforce, if they feel that there's value and it's going to remain private. Yeah, and Paul, I, I really do think that comes down to generational differences because there's a phrase that Adrian used in there, um, live your life online. And you know, I, I think about my own kids. They have grown up living their life online, and so it's a very different feel for them. Uh, it's very easy for them to forget that you know, Big Brother's watching, right? Everything that you put online, um, someone is tracking. And they're using it for some purpose, whether that be to push additional advertising to you, right? Um, tweak your preferences. It's easy to forget that's going on when you've lived your whole life online. So I, I do think, um, you know, is it is it age? Probably, right? But only because young the younger generations have lived such a huge chunk of their life truly living online. Yeah, I think it's interesting, right? Because we think about those younger generations, they, they've lived their whole life online. And we, we can remember a time when, when we weren't online, right? Pre-internet. And, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy to think how, how transformative that must be to truly not even remember a world without the internet. Um, and I think maybe that's where some of that skepticism comes from, right? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Even having conversation with, with my eight-year-old son, and he got his hands on a, on a television that had the programming, from top to bottom. And he said, mom, I can't, I can't pause it. He said, no, you can't pause it. It's live. Well, what do you mean? And so I went on to explain what the TV guide was and how we would get it in the mail every Sunday. And that's how you knew it was going to be on at Tuesday at 7 p.m., right? So it, it's, it's changed not only how we live, but also how we share and how we consume. And it's changed expectations around how immediate things either air quotes need to be or how they're perceived to need to be. So I think in so many ways, it's it's morphed a lot and it's just going to continue to do so. Yeah. Well, I, I think do think a lot of these expectations of service, um, I would say, give away a bit of privacy. And I, I think, you know, if, if a question is posed to me, Paul, will you share your data with X third party? I'm reluctant to click on the box. If the button says, Paul, you know, click on this button to 
find your information or have your information put someplace else so it's easier for you to, to go. It's a different, a very different equation. And I'll uh, I'll play um, a segment just uh, from Chris Marbelli right on 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 this uh, exact same point. Employers that we surveyed declare. 50% of employers would change carriers if they did not seamlessly connect with their benefits technology. Connectivity matters. So as customer segments continue to evolve, products and services continue to expand, technology's ability to stitch together the broader ecosystem, leverage data, AI for personalization, uh, are going to be key to align consumer preference with benefit delivery to maximize participation and maximize value. So we are a little schizophrenic. On one hand, I don't want people to know all this information about me. But on the other hand, I expect that that information will be there to make it easy for me to get my benefits. You know, I should click that tile and this website automatically somehow knows who I am and shares information. So there's clearly information underneath it. If it's a, a UX issue, Privacy is somehow isn't part of the equation, but that's also challenging for for carriers and uh, uh, companies who are responsible for providing benefits today. Yeah, and Paul, I I take it well beyond benefits, right? And I know the topic of this of this um, podcast is the future of work, but um, you know, there's something that Chris said there that I think is incredibly important, and that's connectivity matters. And it used to just be a race for capabilities. Right. Technology was all about for consumers in whatever industry. But um, so let's talk about capabilities that face the employee in, in the in the workplace. Um, it used to be a race to capabilities. Can you do this online? Can you do that online? Um, how easy can you make it now? It's not good enough to have that. Now it all needs to talk to each other. And so it's, it's a whole new ball game of bringing that ecosystem together, as he said. And it's being driven by consumer preferences. Um, so it really is a fascinating acceleration of what started out as just individual capabilities. Check the box. It is interesting to think about the trade-offs, though, right? You know, you think about security, and I, and I would even connect it to an older capability, single sign-on. This idea that I just want to sign into a website once. God forbid you link me to some place and I have to sign in again. I mean, that's offensive to me. I don't know that password. You know, it's you know, it's frustrating, right? And that's 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 technology from 10 years ago. Now it needs to be fully seamlessly connected and integrated. And I completely get it from a UX standpoint, but how, how does the security work? How do we feel comfortable? And Harry, you use the right word ecosystem, right? These things all live together now and they play together, but you know, are we skeptical? Is it safe along every touch point? It just feels like, uh, you know, we have trade-offs, but completely understand that need for that experience of everything to be all together all at once. Yeah, and it's interesting too, right? Because bringing back the point of the generational differences, I have, um, you know, I recall a conversation with with a Gen Z individual and they said, well, what does it matter? What does it matter that all this information is online? They've already stolen it. What does it matter? Just like, Oh, well, that's not quite how I would feel about it as a millennial. I'd be a little freaked out about that and starting to put those protections in place. But there are mindsets out there of this technology-driven generation that could say, well, they already have it, right? That that system's already been hacked, that third party's already seen it. So, oh, well, let's keep moving. And I'm not saying that that's the right view necessarily or the wrong view. It's just a view that comes across differently when speaking with generations and, and privacy concerns and sensitivities around what do I want people to know and, and what, what do I never want people to know? Yeah, and, and there we go again with the generational differences, right, Laura? Um, yeah, it's going to come up over and over again. And yeah, the one thing I think we can all agree on is it's not going to slow down, right? So, uh you know, people are going to have to get comfortable with the security of data. They're going to have to get kind of comfortable um, creating solutions that are connected together and to, to meet consumer needs. And as generations continue to shift, the demand for that's going to continue to, to go through the roof, quite frankly. So, um, you know, it's funny. We, we've talked about AI. And I know I have to bring it up as the last episode, the metaverse, right? I had to, Laura. Um, but we talked about AI and, and there's this ongoing debate around people are equally excited about AI because of the possibilities, but also apprehensive about AIs because of, of security. And 
you're starting to see regulations around how do you protect consumer information. So um, it is going to be it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I think this is a perfect segue to, to kind of dive into genera- generational differences. And in, in, in let's talk about culture. Right. So culture is an interesting one, like technology. It can be defined in a number of ways. And I think it depends on where you are, who you are and uh, and what's you know, what have you experienced? Have you experienced positive culture? Is it culture at home? Is it culture within a community? Is it culture in the workplace? But when you look at workplace culture, I looked up a, a number of definitions and we've had guests throughout the series define it slightly differently, but there's some some key things in here. So, you know, it's shared values, belief systems, it's attitudes and the set of assumptions or expectations that people in a workplace share. And what I found interesting about that definition as shared by Forbes is they talk about a workplace. And I think a lot of our conversations have been talking about the physical aspect of work and um, how important it is, how m- important it is or is not. And where we've seen it shift, right? Because when we first started recording, you know, COVID times were, were were ripe and now we're on a different version of that. So see, some people are in the workplace, some people are out of the workplace. And the other thing that I think it's important to bring up and ask is um, how does it show up or represent itself? How do you know when you have workplace culture, right? And does it look different? So, so tapping into the generational conversation, we have um, at our company, we have a young professionals group, much like many others. And I would I would put money on it that their definition of workplace culture is going to be a little bit different than somebody who may have been in the organization for multiple decades. Um, so I think that there's interest there. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, here's what it is. Here's how we know it's there. But why is it important? Right? Why? Why is culture something that people should strive to have and define? Um, in our conversations, we talk about you know it's attraction, it's retention of employees, it's the increase of employee engagement. If you have a culture that allows for that, you're going to engage people in ways that build trust, that build potential transparency, that build authority to help strengthen those ties back to the company and why it's important. And then one of the most interesting ones that I think we heard a few times is the importance of employees feeling valued not only as humans, but also valued within that workplace and the work that they're doing not only matters today, but they can see their work in the future and their work in the future providing towards the success of that overall organization. So we've had a lot of interesting themes and I'll touch on quiet quitting in a, in a, in a minute, but um, you know, for now, I, Paul, if you wouldn't mind, play the, the Simon clip from Mercer. That one's definitely interesting. Organizations are reflecting and they're reflecting okay, when I make a decision to outsource or consider a partner, how does this represent my culture? In essence, I'm outsourcing my culture. That's one. Two, voices and choices, right? If you have a choice, your employees will have a voice, meaning um, the old days of uh, if you put in a plan, come from home office, and it came in a certain way. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that hits in it. It's so interesting when you talk about outsourcing culture when you bring on a third party what does that mean and and should we be taking that into consideration as we're having these larger conversations and the other thing that Simon brought up that's really interesting is the voices and choices so if you have a choice your employees will have a voice and uh, throughout the recording of our season there have been a lot of cultural instances in the larger society where people have used their voice for change their voice to bring up concern their voice to bring up you know future whether it's political, whether it's social, economic, it's been very interesting this last calendar year to say at the very minimum. And the role that culture plays within that, I think is, is fascinating um, and what it, what it sounds like. So with that, I want to, I want to flip. Actually, I'm going to ask my co-host if they have any thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I'll jump in on this one. I, I, I really liked what Simon had to say, and, and I like that concept of choice. And I'm going to selfishly apply it very specifically to something that, that I do here at Symmetra, which is voluntary benefits and employee benefits. And, you know, choice in this space, in this realm, has grown exponentially in the last five, 10 years. You know, employee benefits used to be one size fits all, and then maybe it was a small, medium, large, right? You know, that was, was choice. Now we have this whole menu of voluntary products because employees are individuals and 
employers have a certain culture and they need everyone to feel supported if they want to have, I think, a successful, strong culture. And voluntary benefits, employee benefits are one of the ways that you can do that. Make sure people feel represented when they go through their benefit enrollment process. Make sure they've got choice that resonates with them. I just think that's so important. And I realize that's kind of very specific to what I do, but I'm passionate about it. I think that really is a way in which, as an industry, we can support individuals and support choice and support strong company culture. Yeah, and I, I, I Todd, I, I just agree. I think if if I showed up at a company and the benefit package didn't feel like it worked for me or it worked for you know people 15 years younger or much older, I I, I don't think I would feel like I, I belong. So I think, uh, as you say, I think voluntary benefits, I think offers is, is turning out to really have its day today um, to keep a broader uh, set of workers in place when the job market is as tight as it is. Yeah. One of the things that I loved, the thing that really jumped out at me in that comment was um, if you have a choice, your employees have a voice, right? Laura, you, you called that out. And I, I'll go all the way back to one of the very first statements I made on this podcast series. I think opening up the episode one was the fact that uh, companies are focused on customer experience, right? As the pace of change accelerates, um, everyone is focused on how do I satisfy my customers and pointed out that those same consumers and customers are the employees that work for companies and they bring those preferences to the workplace. So, you know, they speak with their choices as a consumer, as things become, you know, as, as more benefits and other employee support mechanisms become more relevant um, in the, in the workplace, they can speak with their voice from, by making a choice there too. And it's just, it's cool to see that connection come out in the dialogue that we had. Yeah, I agree. And what's interesting is, is that um, you hearkening back, you know, bringing preferences to the workplace. So the physical sense of place again, right? But then what happens if the workplace comes to the employee? That was definitely a theme that we explored during this, right? As, as, as we're recording in our homes, in our home offices, something we would have never done five years ago necessarily. Um, it, it's really an interesting part because if culture is based around individuals sharing time and space and energy and thought, and when you take those individuals and you disperse them across the country or the world, can you still create culture? Does culture still exist? Or does this culture evolve as the realities evolve? I think is just a big, a big question for us to consider. And when I was talking through earlier, one of the things that I found interesting is, is what is what does culture look like, right? I think it's defined differently by each. But with that, Paul, if you could play the Jessica Kim quote, please. But it, I think what gets me excited is finally there's this pivotal global point of the pandemic that says, oh my gosh, look at how much has been unseen. And that combined with employees saying, I am no longer going to be okay with you not seeing this part of my life. And my priorities have shifted. Wow, right? Can't unsee things, right? Priorities have shifted. Employees' realities have been unseen. You know, I, I think back and using the example of, of my own personal situation again, I think back to one of the first podcasts we recorded, the very beginning of the pandemic. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, I hope my technology works. You know, this is an important thing that we're doing here. And then out of the blue, my then four-year-old runs up with a Hot Wheels car and starts driving it up my arm, up the side of my head as we're live streaming. I can't do anything about it because it's going live. And you just have to sit there, smile, act like it's not happening. Oh my goodness. The, how I felt about that then is different how I'd feel about that today, right? Because back then it was, oh, you can't make that kind of mistake. That's a mistake. And now in my, my own millennial opinion, I feel as though people are just accepting, right? These are the realities that we're in. We are still employees. We are still hardworking. We are still working towards that shared goal of success. It just so happens that sometimes, you know, you end up with a hot wheel car riding up alongside your head. So the fact that we as a, as a, you know, a population have grown more accepting of these realities of employees and then bringing their whole work to home instead of their whole self to work, I think is a really interesting concept that's shaped over the over the course of our recordings. Yeah, you know, I'll jump in on this one. I, I agree, Laura, and that that is a very 
powerful clip from from Jessica. I think it resonates with all of us. And I I think back to a theme that that's come up on multiple episodes, and it is the role of the pandemic and COVID as not so much the creator of trends, but the revealer and the accelerator of trends. Right? There's so much here that was was there already. COVID just sped it up. Some of the technology, but also Jessica's point about the you know revealing you know people the need for in, inclusion, the people differences. I mean a lot. It caused a lot to be seen. And I think it's one of the true benefits coming out of that time of, you know, understanding better how we have to support people's needs. You know, there's we'll talk about mental health eventually, too. I mean, so much we had mental health challenges before COVID, certainly. But how much did that reveal and accelerate some of those challenges? So, um, you know, I just thought that was a great, great, great quote by Jessica. Yeah, I, I always think you know the uh, the first sign of of life is change, and the uh, employer employee relationship uh, has changed for the good. You know, and and Harry, I I don't think there's any. Tur- I, I don't, we're not turning the clock back here. No, we are not. Uh, that's for sure. As I said before, we've learned the technology uh, topic. It's it's not going to do anything but accelerate. And uh, let's get on the on a train and. And get it down the tracks. But um, I will say this you know, before we leave this topic. Uh, I, I think that Jessica Kim comment is probably it's probably my favorite clip of the entire season. I just that comment. Look how much has been unseen. It was just so cool. Um, yeah, that that's very telling. And um, I guess I'd close by saying, Laura, can we get a can we get that Hot Wheels thing replicated? Can we do that again on this episode? <laughs> sure. That'd be fun to watch. So, no doubt, no doubt. So, I, I'd love to jump in and, and talk about and uh, really build on what, what Laura talked about about the workplace and what is the workplace, right? Is it this physical place? Is it this greater kind of concept? And it it, it ties back to Harry's uh, key theme number three, and it's it's remote work, alternative work, alternative work locations. Uh, we talked about this, I think, in every episode in some context. And when I was preparing my my thoughts for this, I, I really reflected on my personal experience. I around 15 years ago, I was part of a very early pilot work from home program at a, a company, a large company that I worked for. I think I worked half the week from home. Absolutely hated it. I think I gave it up within three months, maybe six months. You know, at first I was like, oh, this is so cool. I get to work from home. You know, I felt so disconnected. Uh, the management team did not work from home, which was interesting, right? So then all of a sudden it took away your visibility to the management team. They were in the office every day. And I quickly pivoted and said, you know, this is not for me. And, you know, fast forward 15 years later, the the pandemic starts to hit. And I remember working for Symmetra. This really is something that, that I remember very, very deeply, actually. You know, the COVID sort of first made landfall in the U.S. in the Seattle area, which is where our company is headquartered. And we were, you know, among the first to, well, I don't know about, of, uh, but uh, Seattle was one of the first areas to start having people sort of mandatory work from home. And there was a couple week lead time where we were sitting in our office in Connecticut thinking like, boy, are we going to get sent home? And oh my God, I can't work from home. Like there's too many distractions and oh, there's no way I could do that. I think I talked to Harry about this as a matter of fact. And, you know, before long, though, we were all forced to do it, right? And what I what was amazing to me was in those 15 years, first of all, the technology jumped to enable it, right? So some of that disconnectedness, the technology, getting back to Paul's point, the video calls, the how we're recording this right now, such great advancements created a much better way to effectively work from home. And also, you know, the circumstance created a situation where no longer you had that bifurcation, right? Everybody's working from home. So you didn't have that disconnectedness. And, you know, to me, I thought it went better than I than I thought it would. And one of the positive sort of unintended consequences was, you know, we were the Connecticut office and there was the home office in Bellevue and other offices. And there always was a little bit of a disconnect, I think, between the offices, just socially and how you collaborated. That went away, poof, instantaneously. As soon as we all worked from home, we all were on these video calls. We worked in the same way. And I actually felt more connected to the broader Symmetra culture, getting back to culture. And I think it was one of those sort of positive, unintended consequences of the whole thing. Um, so anyway, I'd love to get us started with some clips here. I'd like to play one from Ellen Meza from DocuSign, who had a really interesting perspective on 
her company's experience from uh, the transition to more prominent work from home. And when we think about recruitment and retention, um, it may not be that um, the best candidates are located where we are. And we used to, I run mobility for DocuSign. We used to move people all over the place to get them closer to our headquarters or our larger offices. We don't have to do that anymore, right? If someone's really happy where they're living, now, of course, if they want to come to San Francisco, come on over. Yeah, I, I I thought that this was great. Um, you know, first of all, a couple couple quick reflections. The expanded candidate pool is an excellent point. I think we've taken advantage of that at Symmetra. I think Paul and Laura, your companies likely have too. Um, relocation expenses. So I actually the job after the one where I worked from home, I took a job where they relocated me to New Jersey. This was expensive. I mean, very expensive. And I can't imagine a company doing that now except for very, you know, sort of unique circumstances, right? So you think about how things are different, how they operate. But I think the final thing I wanted, what resonated with me about this is, so think about DocuSign. They're in San Francisco. San Francisco is probably the most expensive place on earth right now. I think it actually has surpassed, you know, North Carolina, New York and, and LA, which is, which is crazy to think. And I, uh, I mean, Harry, Harry knows me well. He probably will realize I've been trying to work football into this conversation forever. So I'm going to in a tangential way. I, I read an article recently that Brock Purdy, the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, one of the best players in the league, mind you, but he was a late draft pick. He lives with a roommate in San Francisco because an NFL quarterback cannot afford to live on his own in San Francisco. That should tell you a little bit about that cost of living. So, you know, you think about it from the perspective of the employee, you know, I mean, unless you have a compelling reason, I, I don't want to move to San Francisco. Or if you're DocuSign, I, you have to pay me so much money to move to San Francisco. So, you know, it's just interesting to me how this has created a whole new world and, you know, different economics for employees and employers alike. Yeah, it's uh, Todd, I agree. And I, I've had some similar experiences. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I relocated once, no kids, <laughs> you know, wife, no kids. That, that was, listen, that was, that was kind of nice. Uh, second time we relocated was, you know, with kids, you know, three and five. Okay. Uh, that was, that was, that started to get disruptive. You know, the next jobs, I didn't move. Right, a lot of a lot of commuting, um, a lot of remote work. Um, I kind of look back at my career, and uh, you know, I've, I've been working hybrid for probably fifteen years. So I've kind of learned this. It was interesting coming into the pandemic. wasn't totally different, but like you, um, a lot of these places I was working at weren't exactly a hybrid spot. So you know, either had to show up early, make sure you're on the days where your your presence was was felt. Um, I think coming into the pandemic was interesting. You had to be, I think it forced us all to operate differently. Culture had to be intentional, right? Uh, I, I'm not managing Laura by looking at what she's doing at her desk. I have to manage, I'm now managing outcomes. And I think these are skills that um, many people still have to learn. I think a lot of us are starting to get there, uh, but the benefits are great. You know, uh, like you said, we have, um, I guess, uh, three people, uh, three people out of an eight-person uh, group working fully remote, and uh, Laura, you know, I, you, you certainly have a, a good view of what we've done, and haven't haven't done over the last couple of years. Yeah, it, it's interesting, right? And then, especially as that team has grown, how do you get to know these people if they're all working remote? And to Todd's earlier point, you hop on a Zoom, right, or you hop on your fa your favorite video conferencing technology. Um, but another interesting thing to that point, when you take place away and the remote work becomes a reality, there were actually locations, and they're still doing this, that will pay people to move to that location to live and work there. And it's not necessarily even working for an employer who's based there. It's just come people to our location, Italy, Switzerland, West Virginia, Kansas, Vermont. They will pay human beings to move themselves there to just live and work. So what an interesting phenomenon, right? So Todd, you worked for a company that invested in you and the movement of you and your your home from place A to P. Now we're thinking, 
oh, you want to go to Italy? Let's see who's going to pay me to move there. I will sell everything happily, right? Especially during the, the housing market that we just had. Maybe not so much now, but sell everything happily, make a buck, and then go get paid to live somewhere fantastic that I would have never considered before because it wasn't an option. So how does that affect things? You know, technology enables it. Does it shift culture? And, you know, the work, work from wherever mentality, I think is just very, very interesting. So Laura, that sounds like a great deal, right? Get get paid to go live kinda and work here, somewhere. That I'm kind of here for it. But, yeah. You know, there there was a, a comment that um, that Ellen made in that clip that uh, I found the most telling, and that is, if someone's really happy where they're living now, right? And uh, we talk about mental health, and boy, if someone's happy where they're living now, then how does that play into you know, how they perceive their experience if, if they're asked to move? But, um, you know, I was recently at an event with a whole host of companies and we were talking about different remote work policies and who was moving hybrid and requiring people to come back in the office. And it was interesting to listen to the dialogue around the reasons why some companies were having people come back in the office and things that came up were, we're seeing increased turnover in our remote work population. Uh, we're worried about culture. We're worried about productivity. And it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out, right? Are those companies that are having people come back in the office, um, is remote work really the reason, right? Are they misdiagnosing the issue for the things that are happening? Because it's easy to look at remote work as the thing that changed. And is that the cause of these issues or is something else? And conversely, uh, you know, companies that are 100% remote, enjoying recruiting people, right? But are we going to learn that ultimately your culture does does deteriorate a little bit? Uh, I'm I'm going to be fascinated to watch the next you know several years play out and see which way these things go. Yeah, those are those are great points, Harry, and I'm I'm glad you raised them because I think they play nicely with the next clip I wanted to play. Uh, this was a quote from uh, a clip from Pat Leary, who joined us from Limra, organization that's done a lot of fantastic research about employees and employee experience and employer preferences. So, um, why don't we go ahead and play this clip from Pat, and then we'll talk about it for a bit. But this, I think organizations are going to be settling on this hybrid approach where, you know, a few days in, uh, in the office and a few days to work re remotely. And, and, you know, some of the things that I've heard, is it, it's part of it's the type of work that you're doing, right? And when, it, when you're in knowledge-based uh, type, types of employment and types of jobs, that's where it really suffers when you're remote, right? There are other types of, you know, blue collar industries, right? If you work in the trades, well, it's hard, hard to be a plumber working from home, right? So, so that's another lens we have to think about is the type of work um, that's being done. Um, but I, I don't think we're going back. Another thing that I think is going to play uh, a role here. It'll be curious, uh, as as we all know, we haven't really talked about the economic environment too much. But to your point, Todd, you hear that a lot of CEOs will whisper and say, yeah, we really would love to get people back, but it's such a hot labor market. If we do that, they're just going to jump to another employer who, who allows them to work remotely. I think it'll be really interesting if, you know, and we all know this will happen at some point, whether it's next year, two years, five years from now, the pendulum's going to swing, right? And and, and it, it's no longer going to be a worker's a hot labor. Yeah, so I thought that was very interesting from Pat. And there, there's two things that stood out to me about it. Um, one, I think he was, he was someone making a joke, but I, I actually think it's a really good point about, you know, not everybody can work from home. You know, we talk about these things and these trends and, you know, we, we work in, in the corporate world and we are part of that knowledge economy and, and work at home suits us. But sometimes we need to remember not everybody can work from home, right? So even if that's a trend that not, we're not going to get to a place where everybody works from home. And I, I think it's really important for Harry and I too, because I think about the employers we serve, we write all different types of industries. We need to be thinking about blue collar industries. We don't need to be tailoring our offerings to a work from home, you know, type of workforce. This is not, this is just one sector almost where work from home is, is having this, you know, moment and, and this trend. So I, I just, thought that was interesting. I, I think the second thing, too, is just his comment about the economic environment and the hot labor market. I think there's also another tendency where when there's a trend or when there's a shift, 
sometimes folks assume that that shift is just going to continue unchecked. You know, oh, you know, the worm has turned, you know, the, the, the dynamic has shifted and we've moved away from these workplaces and we're going to have hybrid and we're going to have full-time work from home. And we very, very well might, but there could be other forces that emerge in the future that we're not really contemplating. And I think one of them was well articulated there. Employees have had a lot of power over the last three to five years. And is that always going to be the case? You know, if the labor market is not so hot and you have senior executives that prefer in-office work environments, or maybe they've invested in an expensive corporate headquarters and boy, they like to see people in it, you know, could there be a change in this and might the trend maybe not go all the way back, right? But tend to go back in that direction. Yeah, it's uh, Todd. It, it's interesting. You know, certainly a labor market uh, is an, an important important factor in decisions in terms of letting people work remote or not. Letting in, interesting concept, right? Um, I do think the economics uh, over the next you know five to ten years will play an enormous uh, role in reshaping work, reshaping what cities are, um, because arguably um, the success of and, and desire to to work remotely. It's not that I don't want Todd. I don't want to spend time and, and work collaboratively. I don't I just don't want to be in a car or a or a train for an hour and a half each way. You know, I can I can take that back and exercise. I can take that and actually work. You know, maybe take a, a whole weekend off. Um, I think the other factor you kind of mentioned that is uh, office space and, and and leases. Now, if my company leases have termination points, <laughs> you know, and what what type of business decision is will a CEO make when they have a chance to cut the lease size in half, um, move to a smaller space? The answer is going to be pretty obvious because you, and you know you're you'll you'll have a hard time justifying spending all that money when you know the company could run more efficiently if you reorganize your space. So I, I think time time will you know t- time will continue a trend that has actually started before as you said before the before COVID. Another interesting point there too is, um, you know, the physical space and, and leaning back into the culture and the generation differences. We have an aging workforce, right? So if we fast forward three years, five years, ten years, long term, what does that look like? And as the boomers go into retirement, and you have the next set of generations coming up, the value of that corner office, that literal corner office, is not the same. It's just not the same. People are not vying for a physical space in the corner of a building. Um, you know, some people are, and that's great, but most I don't believe are, right? Our, our, our focuses have shifted. The value has shifted. So how will the change in generations and how they view these things, such as a physical office, um, how will that impact what culture is? And if the people have voice in that and the voices say, hey, we want to be hybrid, we want to be remote, we want to not have to go to a place for a set boundaries, you know, what is, what is that going to look like? I don't have the answer, but it's just an interesting thought. That is an interesting thought, and um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna move us on to our last theme, the fourth one, and that is uh, mental health. And we save this for last purposely because it really is weaved into everything else that we've been talking about. If you think about the other themes that have been discussed so far, um, technology, right? The way that work is done, the stress over the change of technology, and is AI gonna take my job away? Uh, you think about culture that surrounds people that at work, wherever they work, right? It's it's still part of what you feel every day. You think about remote and hybrid work, are people feeling isolated or are they enjoying being home? All these things are, you know, they really influence the way that people are feeling and influences people's mental health. So, um, you know, we dedicated episode nine of our series to a discussion about mental health. And, um, you know, Ellen Stone talked about uh, how important it was to destigmatize um, the mental health and mental health awareness and how important it is for uh, us to encourage people to ask for help and see that as, as a positive. So, Paul, can you um, run that clip of Ellen? It is imperative to build a culture where destigmatizing mental health is a priority and where getting mental health care is a sign of strength and not weakness. This requires clear and consistent messaging, um, regularly communicating that it's um, important 
to address mental health. All of our employees need to address mental health needs that they have. And it's uh, incredibly important to have senior leaders uh, back up that messaging for us and be the face of the message for us. All right. So yeah, I'm glad we played that clip from Ellen because she raised a really important point. She mentioned that senior leaders have to be uh, a voice around this topic. And um, you know, the word vulnerability has come up in several of our episodes about leaders being vulnerable uh, on every front. But I think this is a really important one. And you know, a couple of things that were talked about in episode nine that were not in the clip uh, is the, the point that employers are there with their employees in some of the most stressful parts of their life. And you don't know how someone's doing until you ask the question, right? So um, building that, coming back to the culture, building that capability to be vulnerable and be open about asking employees how they're doing is just an, such an important part of, uh, of managing mental health. Yeah. And, and the importance around it too, right? Destigmatizing. There, there's the conversations that are happening now that have never happened before or didn't happen decades before. And there's, you know, there's change and evolution in that. And it can be uncomfortable, but it's important, right? We, we as a society have gone through so much and continue to go through so much that being able to ask someone, how are you doing? And then having them have the trust to actually give you a real honest answer is extremely valuable, especially not only for the, for the now, but I think engagement in the future as well. Yeah. You know, and what's, what struck me here in that clip was just, you know, leaders lead by example. You know, she talked about, you know, the commitment you've made to mental health and it sounds like your leadership team here is, and uh, you know, if, if a company says something, but the leaders, you know, walk to the left, walk, it'll do something different. It's, it, it won't work. Yeah, I would just I would just echo that, and I I would really thank Harry for his leadership on on this at Symmetra. I mean, you've you've modeled the behavior. I think you have been vulnerable. You've you've initiated a very important conversation, and I I do completely agree. This starts with senior leaders, and I I uh, really commend the the job you've done for us here at Symmetra. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate that. And you know, we've talked a lot about a lot more around mental health as well. And uh, you know, Karen Wasserman took us down a very different path around uh, around mental health, not just the the cultural aspect of it, but the employee experience aspect of it. Uh, she talked a little bit about um, people are starting to focus more about how the work is done and how that influences the mental health and attitudes of employees. So, Paul, if you could run that clip for us. At Lyra, we're really thinking about, as I kind of alluded to in my introduction, is the importance of thinking about supporting individuals in, through mental health benefits, as well as thinking about employee um, mental health and well-being through the context of the employee experience. And so what we're starting to see both as a trend um, across the mental, mental health industry, as well as something that more and more customers are needing and asking for is the ability to measure how work is impacting the employee experience and how work is impacting mental health and really taking a very proactive approach to making sure that uh, the work itself isn't furthering any em employee mental health distress that folks are experiencing in order to uh, make sure that work isn't the cause of employees really needing additional support uh, outside of the workplace. So, you know, another really good clip from our guests, um, you know, just a different take on the things that impact mental health in the workplace and it really bring a little more science to it, which I think is, is, is pretty cool for us to start thinking about and how work gets done. How does that impact presenteeism? How does it impact absenteeism? Uh, those are really important things that are uh, in, you know, too often centered around mental health and are real costs to companies. And so the, there are so many things here that uh, I think employers need to focus on from a mental health standpoint. I've been known to call it the new pandemic um, because it does feel that way some days if you think about the number of people that you know, that you know or that you have um, you know, exposure to that are having some type of mental health challenge. So um, yeah, another great clip. Yeah, and I thought there was a lot of honesty in, in the calling out. And one of my favorite parts of the clip was making sure that the work is not the cause of why employees need additional resources. 
right? That's an interesting thought, and I'm sure we can all answer that differently. I won't ask you to answer it on on air, but to really kind of reflect back on whatever's going on in that individual's circumstance, is it the work? And if so, what can be done about that? What conversations can be had in in that authenticity to help ease that part of the burden? Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting. I when I listened to that, it. Uh, reminded me of some work I've done with a, a nonprofit that, uh, you know, works with uh, disabled athletes or disa- and disabled individuals. And uh, I would do a lot with military. And so uh, I've had, you know, a, some very direct uh, contact with former uh, Special Forces, Navy SEALs, and also organizations working in Navy SEALs. And uh, in some ways, they are athletes. You know, they're average career is maybe seven, maybe eight years, you know, by the way, a hundred percent of them uh, leave the service disabled in some form or another. And science behind that said, you know what, if we could actually embed a psychologist or psychiatrist inside these units and make them feel comfortable, we can actually extend their life, their, their service uh, with, uh, with our country by, Several years, so it was, it was interesting. But to do that, you had to destigmatize the um, request for mental health, um, and you had to normalize it. So um, I think uh, it, what we see there in a highly highly stressful um, environment has a lot of implications for our workforce today. Yeah, and I think for me, hearing Karen's uh, clip, I actually go back a little bit to my topic and. One thing that can be the dark side of work from home, um, and it can be that lack of work-life balance where you feel like you're always on the clock, right? So we go back to this concept of making sure work is not causing emotional distress. I think that is a, a very real downside to remote work for some people, the fact that they don't have that office to physically leave. They don't have that on-off switch. So you know, I think about how, as, an, as employers, we need to continue to keep that front of mind as long as we're going to manage hybrid work forces and really give the employees the resources they need. Also the encouragement to log off, you know, log off, you know, it's time, it's your time now. Right. And I think that's really important when we think about mental health and, and the workplace in this environment. Great points, so, Todd. And um, I, I, I guess at this point we made it through the four themes, right? I think we have, Harry. We we absolutely have. This has been a lot of fun. There's been a lot of reflection in this. There's been a lot of revisiting of of, of great guests. And I, you know, as, as I think about uh, signing off for this season, I really do want to thank our guests. We had a tremendous group of people willing to join us, have open, thoughtful, candid conversations about some really important topics, occasionally difficult to discuss topics. So, you know, thank you to everyone who spent some time with us. We We, of course, want to thank the audience as well. Thank you for coming along on this trip with us. We hope you've enjoyed it. I know I'm leaving this with a a much better understanding. I wouldn't call myself a futurist per se, but I think I've got a much better understanding of the future of work and and where we're going. So, um, and thank you, of course, to Laura, Paul, and Harry. Uh, It's been really fun talking with with all three of you about these these great topics. So, as I look to the future, again, the future, uh, we will be back with the Working Forward podcast in another season. We will hope to be back sometime in 2024. We're still working out the exact timelines and the exact theme, but we've had a lot of fun. As I've mentioned previously, we want to continue this conversation. We think there's a lot of ground to cover here. So please stay tuned in your podcast feeds. We will be back very, very soon. In the meantime, we hope you have an excellent holiday season, a very, very happy new year. And with that, This is Todd Zen signing off on the first season of the Working Forward podcast. Thank you. You're listening to Working Forward, Future of Work podcast series. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Symmetra Life Insurance Company or its affiliates. The host is not affiliated with Symmetra Life Insurance Company and or any of its affiliates and is solely responsible for the content.